Hello, everybody, and welcome to Floor Fight, the Post Rider serialized podcast in which each season we assemble a politics bracket and pit our contestants against each other to crown the ultimate winner. I am your host and your announcer, Mike Levito. Thanks, Mike. I am your other host and your floor manager, Lars Emerson. Welcome to the podcast and to the exciting brawl we have before us. We have 16 entries remaining after round two, so welcome to round three, everyone. Last episode, we knocked off some big names. It was sad to see some of them go. It was sad to see these people go, as I'm sure it was sad for them when they lost not only in this bracket, but in the presidential elections, they also lost because, as you all know, this is a bracket of losing presidential candidates because the premise of our first season is to pit them all against each other in this bracket to try and determine the answer to this one question, who was the greatest president we never had? This time we're going to win. We're in a race. We're going to win this. We will wage a winning campaign in every region of this country. And then we will win. Let there be no doubt, my friends, we're going to win this election. We're fighting for the American future, and that's why we're going to win. We're going to make sure that we win. Help me become the next president of the United States. Reminder for our listeners how this works. We started with the 56 runners-up in the competitive U.S. presidential races, plus 16 of the top third and fourth place finishers, eight of whom won their play in games to make it into the top bracket. All candidates were seeded based on their percentage of the popular vote. We only have one number one seed remaining, and that is Al Gore, who is actually our lowest seeded number one seed. He got only 48.4% of the popular vote. So Nixon in 1960, Grover Cleveland, and our top seed, Samuel Tilden, they're all out. As we go through each match off, we will introduce the candidate, the year, their seed, who they were bested by, and give you some context. Uh, but you know who most of these people are now. Then Mike and I are going to debate the merits of each against each other before crowning that round's champion. And like we always say, we will flip a coin if we cannot agree, Virginia style. And uh, it'll happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> Maybe it will. Well, Thank you for that information, Lars, and thank you to the listener, yes, you, who can follow along with our live updating bracket on our website. Just go to thepostwriter.com slash floorfight to see the seeds, victors, upcoming matches, and to follow along with us each step of the way. So, without further ado, let's dive into the 16. Welcome to round three. We have, starting off in round three, some powerful, powerful candidates we have George H.W. Bush and William Jennings Bryan, the 1896 vintage, as Mike calls them. George H.W. Bush, just very quickly, he lost re-election in 1992. He got 37% of the vote against Bill Clinton, probably because he said no new taxes and then raised taxes. Strong foreign policy guy. We'll unpack it later. Tell us about uh, this version of William Jennings Bryan. Yeah, so this was William Jennings Bryan's first time running for president. It was the William Jennings Bryan who would lose to William McKinley in 1896 with 46.7% of the popular vote. Really wide swaths of the South and Midwest, actually. It's funny if you look at, like, the election map, it's just like... It looks like he won more states, but he actually did not win more states than McKinley, but it looks like he did because they're all, like, contiguous, whereas the Republican states are kind of divided from each other. Anyway, this is, of course, the Brian who gave the very famous Cross of Gold speech because his big issue was bimetallism and expanding the money supply and general sort of economic reforms that would benefit, you know, sort of the working class, but specifically farmers because they were his ilk because he was a former congressman from Nebraska. Okay. Bush v. Bryant, yes. who should advance into our next round? So we've been talking not only in this show, but also in other things we've recorded. We've been like pretty nice to George Bush, I would say. Yes. Certainly nicer than we are to most post-Eisenhower Republicans. <laughs> yes. But you were also saying that you're, you feel like we should we should reassess a little bit. Here's what I would say. I would say this, <laughs> so far, George H.W. Bush has gotten very lucky in who, who he has been up against, right? He was up against Andrew Jackson in the first round. That was We spent almost no time on that. We eliminated Andrew Jackson. We I think we actually got an email from someone who said, like, if you put Jackson, I'm not going to listen to the rest of the episodes. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, listeners, for letting us I know. I think that were they feel. also the Henry Clay stand? They might have been. Because yeah. that, that would track, right? Yeah. And then Bush was up against Samuel Tilden, which, like we said, was our top number one seed. But Tilden was not like a particularly good candidate. And I also think we've been souring on Brian, as Brian has also, all three iterations of him in this bracket have been up against pretty weak opponents. And 
you know, much like the three iterations of Henry Clay, we're going to have to settle on, like, which one do we like best? Yeah, so I'm not a big William Jennings Bryan fan. And I also think there are problems with George H.W. Bush we should start to unpack. I am not sure if this is the time for that, because I do think George H.W. Bush would have been a better president than William Shunning Bryan in 1896. Can, can you unpack some of those issues of Bryan? Sure. I am not a fan of, of, of a populist candidate, and I am not, mm. I'm not a huge fan of, kind of what a Bryan administration may have looked like. I think his social policies leave a lot to be desired, especially with regards to immigration. I think this is a very important time for American immigration, and Bryan was not... Uh, particularly pro-immigrant guy, nor are most like pro-labor parties in American history, by the way, because immigrants supposedly reduce uh, the cost of labor, which is wages. Anyway, not to get too technical there, uh, but th this remaking of the Democratic Party is like a, a populist anti-immigrant laborers party in the turn of the century. I get why it appealed at the time. I do not think that would have aged very well. That's, that's the first part of my case against Brian. Is that fair? Like, do you disagree? <laughs> no, I, I, th I think that's certainly fair. I don't know how much better the Republicans were on the immigration issue. But yes, I, I am usually also skeptical of populist leaders. And, you know, this feels like a little unfair to William Jennings, Brian. But you would just think that kind of given his coalition and like who held most of the power back in the day, that it would just be a very unstable government. Right. In the sense that there just be, I feel like, lots of domestic opposition by very powerful interests, which, like I said, is not necessarily Brian's fault. But does it cause a second civil war? Probably not. But. No, but the 1896 election is also, we have not really unpacked this before, but it is viewed as a one of the few realigning elections in American history, right? It, where mm -hmm. this view by the Republicans at the time and Kinley at the time, where there was like a stronger central government, you know, being based on gold is not good. And, and Brian was certainly right there. But you, you end up in this realigning pattern of what the parties stand for that I think is kind of important in this time is, you know, the, the, the Republicans just absorb that kind of populist energy until FDR. Yes, I think that is true. That, yeah, that's interesting, too. It may, maybe it does kind of impede the progress of the progressive movement, which was something that was largely spurred on by Republicans like Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, I think we have maybe mixed feelings on Theodore Roosevelt, but if McKinley's not elected, granted Roosevelt was not his running mate in this election, we probably don't get a Roosevelt election, which whatever you think of the guy, I think spurred on a lot of really important reforms, like having sewers and things like that. You know what also is like a problem with Brian that we've what? hinted at a few times? Well, he's opposed to the teaching of evolution. We, yes. We've addressed that. He's also very in favor of all populist ideas, and prohibition is one of those. Oh. I, I, think, I think we have given the William Jennings Bryan enough credit. It's time to start knocking him down. And I think George H.W. Bush is a fair one to knock him down against. Yes, I would agree. Do we, do we want to do a very brief case for Bush? I'll let you make the pro-Bush case. Bush, I think, represented a more pragmatic strain of republicanism than Ronald Reagan, and one that I we've kind of talked about this on before, but like one that we feel like, hey, if he had been elected in 1980 instead of Reagan, may have been a, a net benefit, right? Mm. You know, he is a, very much a policy wonk. He was ambassador to the United Nations. He was director of the CIA. And, you know, obviously he got the ball rolling in 1991 and onward as far as kind of like administering the new world order, if you will, to use, a, I think, a phrase that actually kind of ended up hurting him a little bit because it really just gave fodder to like all the psycho conspiracy theorists. But I, I feel like you could very much argue he was a liberal internationalist, right? And I think actually if there's one thing that we probably could have used in the late 20th early 21st century, it would have been a Republican liberal internationalist instead of a Republican neoconservative like we got in George W. Bush. Mm. And I think, and maybe I'm hyping up a little too much, much in the way that Woodrow Wilson was like key in building the post-World War One era, which to be fair, he could not persuade his own Congress to like take part in and also would end up collapsing, you know, like 15 years later or so. I think that Bush could have been a Wilson-like figure for the way he'd be able to kind of reshape international relations in the post-Cold War era. And I think he just had a very measured, boring version of leadership that obviously turned off some people. I think when it came to economic issues, he was not quite as sound, although, you know, he made a very important compromise on taxes. Obviously, I think he had some communication issues when it came to economic issues. 
But I think maybe this is a little biased statement given sort of like the world we're currently living in now, but it's like just building sort of like firmer relations between nations post-1991, which, you know, I think we did like a decent job at, but maybe having the foresight to prevent things like the former Soviet Union trying to recreate itself. <laughs> I feel like, not not to say that the Clinton administration did a poor job of that, but I think Bush would have a lot of good ideas on that uh, as well. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by H.W. Bush as I've done more research on him for this podcast. It's This is something we can go into a lot more next episode if we agree to advance bush here but he and joe biden as like bookends of the cold war fascinate me because they are actually kind of like incredibly similar people you know they're both like creatures of washington who are just like around for forever and neither of them were very charismatic both have been shaped by this like cold war history and you have one who's president during like the end of the cold war and one who is now facing down a resurgent russia you could write a whole like piece on that that would be very interesting but I think Bush should advance here. I, I I think we've made a positive case for him over Brian. I agree. Okay, Bush advances. I believe that leaves us with just one William Jennings Bryan left in this bracket, who we will see soon. Next up, next matchup, we have Alton B. Parker. He was an 11 seed against Hillary Clinton, a number two seed. So Alton B. Parker, gotta be honest, is the guy who I still do not remember. I know he ran (laughs) against Teddy Roosevelt in 1904. He was like big anti-imperialism. He was pro-gold standard. He basically ran on Teddy Roosevelt being like an unstable maniac. And he lost that election. He got 37.6% of the vote. So this is the only time Roosevelt won a presidential election. That's true. And so Hillary Clinton, this is you probably know who she is, uh, former first lady, former senator from New York, former secretary of state. She, of course, actually won the popular vote against Donald Trump, but she did not win the electoral vote to the consternation of many, many people. You know, she she ran kind of broadly on, on Obama's policies, although she did end up kind of as a matter of political reality coming out against the TPP. But the campaign focused on, you know, Donald Trump's views on immigration and her emails and groping women and Hillary's opposition to all of those things. So <laughs> she was against uh, her yeah. email. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I actually think this is the easiest matchup this round. Parker just keeps advancing by nature of being against candidates we really did not care for. Yeah, I would agree. I made a pretty positive Hillary case last round. So I look forward to advancing Clinton here to pair her against Bush in round four, if that's what you're good with, Mike. Yeah, I, I think Parker has been kind of like the quintessential weak opponent guy. I mean, first he was against George McClellan, who was the failed Civil War general who ran against Lincoln (laughs) and who ended up becoming a very corrupt governor of New Jersey. And then he was against Charles Coatsworth Pickney, who himself was just like a quintessential asshole slave owner, basically. Who ran against (laughs) Thomas Jefferson. It's like, I don't know. Yes, yeah. So yeah, I I think Parker made it further than I'm sure even he expected. (laughs) But yeah, this, this, I think, is a pretty pretty clear choice. The Cinderella story has stopped yes. for Alton B. Parker. Didn't even get as far as St. Peter's did this year. Yeah. All right. Good work. Clinton advances. She'll face off against Bush in round four. That'll be very exciting. Next up, we have our last remaining number one seed, Al Gore, versus number five seed, the aforementioned Thomas Jefferson. Al Gore, you probably know a lot about him, but, you know, very quickly, he's from Tennessee. He was a Democrat. He was vice president under Bill Clinton. In 2000, he, quote unquote, lost the election to Republican George W. Bush. This is not actually a very contentious election, but the decision of the election was certainly very contentious. Yeah, and then he is going to go up against Thomas Jefferson. This is the version of Jefferson that lost to John Adams in 1796, but because it was before the 12th Amendment, then became John Adams vice president, which I'm sure was very awkward. In this election, it was really the first partisan election, right? It was the Federalist John Adams versus the Democratic-Republican Jefferson. Jefferson was a Francophile, and he was very much in support of the French Revolution, whereas Adams was more of an Anglophile and wanted to maintain strong ties with with Great Britain. I almost said United Kingdom. It was not the United Kingdom yet. It was still the Kingdom of Great Britain. And on things like Hamilton's economic policies and generally just kind of the expansion of the federal government and its powers, which, of course, the federal government was, as we know it, 10 years old at that point. So that was obviously a very hot-button issue. Okay, so I, I think this is a very interesting scenario, right? 
Sure. Jefferson, obviously, he's got a lot of problems, right, in his personal life. I, I don't think that's up for debate. I think we both agree he was, like, a generally pretty effective and important president. Yes. However, when I look at him versus Al Gore, Jefferson was, like, he eventually became president, right? Well, that's what <laughs> you know I've been what saying mean? for episodes, because I was really rooting for Mitt Romney last time, man. <laughs> Yes, I actually have a whole set of notes written up about why Jefferson being vice president is actually very important before him being president. (laughs) Give him to me. Okay. So first of all, we've talked about this a number of times, but the transition of power in 1800, which is the election after this one that Jefferson is up in this bracket, is so important. Is is yes. That's a bitter, bitter loss. It's the first time we are transitioning from one party to another in American leadership. It's a huge deal, especially after a very vitriolic election. Uh, the second thing, Jefferson being vice president for those four years is also very important because he kind of sets these standards for how Congress should operate. He literally writes the book on like congressional procedure. It's called Jefferson's Manual to this day. He, Jefferson, makes his name in this time by being opposed to the Alien and Sedition Acts which is like a big deal because it means that, you know, it's often been kind of described that, you know, Hamilton was like the brain of America and Jefferson was like the heart of America. And, you know, Jefferson really lives up to that expectation because of the like foibles of the Adams administration. That, that is my like top line case for why having Jefferson as vice president in the Adams period is so important and why you need that Adams setback or letdown. Yeah, no, I I think I agree with all of that, honestly. I think in a lot of ways, I think the lessons learned, the symbolism of the election of 1800, where you get this transition of power from the Federalist government to the Democratic Republicans, from Adams to Jefferson, from two people who really did not like each other. And even though Adams was quite a poor sport about it and did not attend Jefferson's inauguration, the fact that like this didn't end with somebody being killed is like arguably the most important thing to happen in an early presidential election, perhaps in any presidential election, I'll go as far to say that. Because otherwise it just goes to Jefferson and even though Washington probably favored Adams. It, my guess is if Jefferson wins in 1796, like there's just never a Federalist elected right? because Adams was the only one. Which, uh, not to cut you off, but there is also a policy reason why Jefferson should not be elected in 1796. It's because he will kill the Bank of the United States. There you go. And I think, I don't know that we really have to make this, this as, as strenuous a case this go around, but... There are policy reasons why Al Gore should have been president in 2000. And uh, not not to tease something that hasn't happened yet, because that's a dicey proposition, but we may be unpacking this a little further in a special episode or something like that. But you probably avoid, say, the invasion of Iraq, or the No Child Left Behind Act, or the Bush tax cuts, or lots of these illegal wiretappings that happened, or just everything that happened after the Iraq or like stuff at Abu Ghraib and just lots of other unseemly things that happened under the Bush administration that probably would not have happened under a Gore administration. Maybe that's a little naive because I think the CIA would probably do what the CIA did anyway. <laughs> and I, I, I don't think Gore's like makes black sites disappear, but <laughs> I, I don't know that anybody, if they had a time machine, would be like, you know what I would do is like really make sure Bush won. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> think I think most people can agree that he was not a very good president, and I think it's it's almost addition by subtraction at this point. I would argue. Yes, I, I mean it's it's kind of funny. I've said this a number of times, but you know the, the duel between Jefferson and Adams is so they do not agree on very much. They are so opposed on so many issues. Whereas Bush and Gore, like during their campaign. It was so boring because they agreed on almost everything. Exactly, yeah. So it is ironic that we are making that choice. But I, I, I do think think we got to knock Jefferson off here. He's going to be president anyway. He's going to be a great president four years from mm-hmm. now. But he needs to learn these lessons, and America needs to learn these lessons of his loss. Yes, I agree. I'm almost going to tears over it. <laughs> <laughs> we can unpack Gore later. Yes. Yeah. Gore advances. Thomas Jefferson gets enough press. He's, he's going to be fine. Next up, we have Henry Clay in 1844 versus John Kerry. John Kerry's a number two seed. Henry Clay's a number three seed. Quickly, John Kerry, uh, he was a longtime senator from Massachusetts. He got the Democrats' nomination in 2004 to run against George W. Bush. Um, he got 48% of the vote in that election. It was really focused on, like, uh, war on terror, Iraq war, uh, and whatnot. Yeah, so Henry Clay, this is... I believe Henry Clay's last time running for president, he lost to James K. Polk. He got 48% of the vote. That's pretty good for a losing candidate. They ran on issues specifically about slavery and the annexation of Texas. 
Clay, not a big fan of the annexation of Texas. Polk, a big fan of it. You know, he was a former Kentucky representative, Speaker of the House, all that good stuff. And of course, big proponent of the American system. He liked his tariffs. He liked his infrastructure spending. He liked all kinds of things like that. And, and strong national banks, of course. Clay versus Kerry. What's your, what's your top line read on this? I, I will be upfront. This is my least favorite of our three Clays. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, because Clay in 1844 is kind of too little too late. You need Henry Clay as like mm. a foil to Andrew Jackson, which he is in his previous two runs, and he is not in this one. He's, he's a foil to Polk. That is true. I think in a way they're both a little t- too little too late in a sense. <laughs> in, in that, like, I don't know. If Kerry becomes president in 2004 or inaugurated in 2005, how much can he actually do to, like, reverse the course of the war on terror and the soon to happen recession, right? I'm not sure he makes some of those last four year mistakes that Bush does, especially around like Katrina. That's um, true, yeah. And yeah. the war is just real, like I, I get how people would still be behind the wars in 2004. I think that becomes increasingly untenable the next four years. And I, Bush is surrounded with people who want him to keep, keep going. Mm-hmm. Kerry, I don't think would necessarily have been. Yeah, that's fair, okay. So here's the thing with, with, with also Henry Clay, 19, 1844, and this might get us in kind of like tricky, honestly tricky, like moral territory in a sense. Okay. So James K. Polk was like an expansionist, right? Yeah. Like he was bought into the idea of Manifest Destiny. Yes. And in 1846, the Mexican-American War starts. And of course, by the end of the Mexican-American War, which ends in 1848, so Polk is still president we have signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and the Mexico has ceded large swaths of its territory to the United States, which include land that would become states like Arizona and New Mexico and Colorado and Nevada and California. <laughs> are are, are you saying I would important... have been born Mexican in this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you just would have been born in, like, you know, Michigan or something. I don't know. Oh, God. Um, but, like, basically, there is a chance that, like, so Henry Clay was initially he was very quiet about it but as the war raged on actually as he lost a son in it clay became very critical of the mexican-american war he thought it was completely unnecessary he thought it was very dangerous he thought it would basically like give rise to a military dictator of the united states he just did not like it at all so there's a good chance there is no mexican-american war if clay is president that also means there is no state of california how do we feel about that trade-off I think you have to start with one question back is was the Mexican American war justified? Not no. <laughs> and it could just be that I'm not educated enough on this war to like make this claim, but it's like it seems to me like it was a war of expansion, right? Yes, absolutely. And then they made up the like blood on American soil thing to kind of push it. Yeah. And Polk justified the war because he, he was saying like Mexico is not paying America's war claims or something. Well, basically what happened was is the United States annexed Texas. There was disputes about where the border of Mexico and Texas was. But by the way, the way the United States was able to annex Texas was that when Texas was still Tejas and it was a Mexican state, was they basically kind of tried to attract American settlers by allowing them to own slaves and stuff. Texas declares its independence to the Republic of Texas. They want to be annexed by the United States. Eventually they are. Polk sends troops to Texas and basically tries to provoke a conflict and is successful in provoking a conflict between American troops and Mexican troops. So the stated reason for it is that, well, the Mexican troops attacked American troops on American soil, and now we just have to, we, we, we got to give them a what for. That, that was kind of the plan. Right. There's certainly some shady, shady things, and I know Polk mm. is censured by the House for it. Abraham Lincoln makes an early name for himself by, like, basically being in the House, being like, show me exactly where the Mexicans incurred right. on American territory. You can't, because they didn't. And, you know, this isn't to say that there'd be no westward expansion with, you know, maybe we end up purchasing that land from Mexico. Who knows? Right. I don't think that's inconceivable. Yeah. I, I mean, I am not sure if this is avoidable, though, it is, is kind of a counter argument I'd make. Does electing Clay stop a war with Mexico or does it just delay a war with Mexico? Clay is waffling on this issue. He's actually not really consistent through this election what he believes in. And he says both things. Mm hmm. Uh, Clay is also a slavery gradualist. Like, he, he owns slaves. He does, yeah. 
I don't know. I don't see Clay as the man able to do something long-term about these issues at this point. I, I think the ship is sailing on both slavery and on westward expansion. You're probably right. An also interesting point is that Mexican-American Wars actually were many of the future commanders of the American Civil War would gain a lot of their experience. Ulysses S. Grant, you know, saw combat experience of the Mexican-American War, mm. which then informed strategy in the Civil War. So maybe in a way that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, I think that I am... In a way, Henry Clay running in 1844 kind of feels like Bob Dole running in 1996. Yes. Right? I, I, I it, agree. It, it is the campaign that should have happened, and I guess in Clay's case kind of did happen, 20 years earlier, and one that is just kind of like not where the rest of the country is and, and just kind of irrelevant. Yes. And I think that that leads for a precarious governing situation. And, you know, if we had Bob Dole in 1976, I think that's a different conversation than Bob Dole in 1996, who didn't, I, do, I believe, did not make it out of the first round. So, yeah, I, I think it could be talked into Kerry here. I yeah. mean, it's, I just spent a long time talking about how awful Bush was as president, and I don't know that I want to argue for giving him a second term. So Right. I, I'm trying to come up with like a, a this isn't so much a, a, a rejection of Clay either. I'm trying to come up with like a, a pro carry argument. And and I think it boils down to this, at least over Clay. Is is Carry is like a very you, you, you kind of said yourself, they're very similar, right? They're both kind of too little, too late at this point. They're both clearly very competent politicians. They're very qualified. They know what they're doing. And, you know, I'm going to go back to your your Jenga theory. <laughs> if you pull the, the Polk presidency Jenga thing out and you put in a, a, a near-death-looking Henry Clay, does that not lead to a worse American future than if you pull out the George W. Bush <laughs> Jenga piece and put in John Kerry? Probably you know, does. If I see them, if I see, you know, I'll, I'll give Henry Clay the benefit of the doubt. He's probably more qualified to be president than John Kerry in his time. Like, Henry Clay was eminently qualified. I, I guess so was John Kerry. But if you're going off of America's interests, who is in the best interest of the country? And that kind of leads me to go for Kerry. I would agree. I, I, I've been sold on that. Okay. Henry Clay is still in here two more times. It's just, it's, we got to start yes. killing some of them off. <laughs> so, Kerry can advance the next round. He'll go off against Al Gore. That'll be, that'll be interesting. But we will take a commercial break for now. If you're enjoying Floor Fight, be sure to check out the podcast that started it all, Running Mates. It's the podcast where Mike and I went through every modern presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks. Not only that, but we made our case for who would have been a better pick each cycle and where and how vice presidential picks could make a difference each election. Could Hillary Clinton have won in 2016 if she picked a different running mate? Could Al Gore have won in 2000 if he picked a different running mate? That's the premise of Running Mates, which you can find on thepostwriter.com or everywhere podcasts are found. Subscribe and run through every election from 1968 to 2020 with an emphasis on that second name on the ticket. And we're back for the second half of round three. Let's get right to it. We have number eight seed. I, I think our real Cinderella story in this bracket so far, actually, Benjamin Harrison yeah. uh, versus number four seed, Martin Van Buren from the election of 1840. Yeah, so Benjamin Harrison, who bears the distinction of having defeated Grover Cleveland in 1888 and then losing to him in 1892, forever creating the first non-consecutive presidency in American history and thus far the only, knock on what it is, the only. So he was a Republican. He won 43% of the vote. And, you know, back in these days, the big campaign questions were things about, like, the spoils system and executive appointments and tariffs. Harrison, he supported high tariffs. He supported the gold standard. He also supported labor rights and veterans' pensions. I think the reason why he's, he's gone so far as he has is that he had some fairly progressive ideas, specifically a federal elections oversight bill to help make voting fair and to secure voting rights for African Americans. He signed the Sherman Antitrust Act. He created national forest reserves. He sort of strengthened the United States military and Navy. And he also wanted to introduce a federal education funding. And you think about it, it's kind of wild because the Department of Education would not exist for another 80 yeah. years. 
Martin Van Buren in 1840, he had been president. There had been some economic peril in his first term. He supported an independent treasury system. He refused to admit Texas as a slave state. He lost in the election of 1840 to the Whig candidate, William Henry Harrison. Van Buren only got 46.8% of the vote, but Harrison got 53. So we have the man who lost to William Henry Harrison. (laughs) Yes, and we have his grandson, Benjamin Harrison, as well. The only grandson, grandfather pairing to be president. Uh, So far. Yes. (laughs) George P. Bush. It's going to happen. Yeah, in his <laughs> dreams. Yeah, so I actually think we should keep the Cinderella story going. I've learned mm. so much about Benjamin Harrison while doing this podcast. I kind of dig the guy. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He didn't really want to be president. At least he didn't want to be president for a second term. But he felt it was kind of like a moral imperative. Well, it's maybe putting it strongly, but he felt like he had to run because the people opposing him were like very corrupt. And he was not a fan of that. Yeah, and I think kind of based on the logic of some of our earlier picks, it's like, I like Van Buren's support of a treasury system. I like his chilliness towards slavery. But a lot of that feels kind of reversible, given what would happen over the next like 25 years or so. Whereas Harrison, you know, kind of, I, I feel like he's kind of like trying to carry forward the torch. And maybe we're overemphasizing how much he emphasized it, but like, the idea of sort of having federal voting protections for African-Americans and federal education funding. I mean, a lot of those ideas would not crop up again to like the 60s, right? The 1960s, you know, on the federal level, at least. And who knows the different ways that like, you know, the Jim Crow South would have tried to subvert those ideas. But I do think having one who, because he wins a second term, is able to kind of ironically purge his inner circle of the people who were a little more corrupt and who wanted to do things he didn't want to do would would have more uh, more of a mandate to pursue these kind of more progressive goals. Yeah, I, I see Harrison in kind of an Eisenhower light. Is he's he's very quietly going above and beyond, very behind the scenes, and you know Eisenhower is not viewed as a very exciting president. Benjamin Harrison, most people probably forgot about, but he's very underrated. I mean, he's he's doing all of this kind of stuff that is pretty righteous in a time where there is a lot of pushback to that and you know obviously he loses re-election because of that but i i genuinely believe that he uh he deserved and should have served a second term i think we would have been better off and i i think a more powerful federal government in the late 1800s uh yeah seems like a pretty good idea i mean we've kind of had it ever since the great depression and it you know seems to have worked out yeah i agree and grover cleveland gonna be honest I don't feel like I'm a big fan of his. No, I, I don't like him. <laughs> and, you know, do I have anything negative to say about William Henry Harrison? No, because he died 30 days into <laughs> office. But I, I have a very yeah. positive case to make for Benjamin Harrison, and I just yeah. not so much about Van Buren. So I think, I think again, this is like very convoluted logic considering who John Tyler was. John Tyler, if you don't know, was a vice president who succeeded William Henry Harrison upon his death. He was also the only president to serve in both the American and the Confederate governments. But I, I think you could argue that like having that the, the that succession period is like very important, right? Mm. It established that precedent. The next time you'd get it is Zachary Taylor when he passes away in the 1850s, I believe. And and I, America's in a, in a bit more of a fragile place at that point. And I think that uh, having that transition period in a time of like, you know, not that early America was ever really like tranquil outside of, I guess, the era of good feelings, but like in, in a little less politically volatile era, I think was probably a good thing. Yeah. Let's go Harrison. All right. All right. The, the Cinderella story continues for Benjamin Harrison. I, I bet we've now given him more press than any He's other ever podcast. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny where, like, I feel like you do this. It's like you almost become more fascinated by the Benjamin Harrisons than, like, the George Bushes, right? Just because it's like, I don't know that much about him. Like, I want to read a Benjamin Harrison biography now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Harrison moves to round four. Next up, we have Thomas Dewey. In 1948 versus John Quincy Adams in the election of 1828. Yeah, so in 1948, Thomas E. Dewey is the popular governor of New York. On his second crack at the presidency, this time running against Harry S. Truman, 
He, of course, famously loses, even though a very scientific, I'm sure, Reader's Digest poll said that he was going to win handily. So the thing about this campaign for him is that he ran a lot of platitudes. He did not have a lot of concrete ideas, but he was very broadly against the Red Scare and against red baiting and McCarthyism. He was also for expanding Social Security and funding public housing, civil rights legislation, and the very nondescript promotion of health and education by the federal government. So generally some pretty kind of like liberal and progressive ideas, but doing so as a Republican. Yeah, and John Quincy Adams, in 1828, he lost the election to Andrew Jackson. Quincy Adams got only 44% of the vote to Jackson's 55. This was four years after their very bitter election in which Adams won via a contingent election in the House of Representatives. Adams supported, you know, kind of the Hamiltonian and then Henry Clay model of like an American system of infrastructure and, and roads and like a strong central government. He also claimed that Jackson was, you know, violent and unstable. He was very anti- He may have had a point. <laughs> right, yeah. Adams was very anti-populist, which is probably why he appealed to Mike and myself. But he, you know, he supported a national university and engagement with the countries of Latin America. Kind of underrated guy. Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I think a very skilled politician. Um, <laughs> except that he could never win an election. Yeah, fairly. except for that. I, he, he, would have, he would be elected to the House after his presidency and actually served there for a long time. And was very much against slavery while he was in the House, actually. There's a story where there was a, a gag rule on discussing slavery. And I don't know if it was all of Congress, but it was certainly in the House because that was just the way they would avoid the issue. And John Quincy Adams would get up, people like, I want to talk about slavery. And they'd be like, no, you can't do that. He's like, but I have a letter here from a bunch of slaves who say they really like being slaves. And like, obviously, that was satirical that no such letter existed, but he did it to make a point. If you've seen Amistad, you know, he argued on behalf of a bunch of slaves illegally taken to the United States after they banned the transatlantic slave trade. So fun anecdote about John Quincy Adams. So I, mm -hmm. I used to have to do these tours. I, I gave tours on Capitol Hill for like a year while I was interning there. And there's this spot in the old house chamber that's like marked John Quincy Adams's desk. And what you tell people during the tour is like, if you stand here and then you send someone to the opposite spot across the room, is like, you can hear them whispering. Like, it's just the design of that room makes it so that John Quincy Adams could, in theory, hear a conversation across the room. And so there's this legend goes that Adams could overhear the opposition talking about him. <laughs> and he like used that to political advantage as... Just a fun, fun fact. <laughs> that is a fun fact. I had no idea. So I think I am actually early on, I'm leaning towards John Quincy Adams because, and we've talked a lot about Dewey. I think we both like Dewey, but while I'm perfect, I do think Harry S. Truman was a good president. And I feel like we basically get Thomas E. Dewey as president when we get Dwight D. Eisenhower as president. <laughs> I mean, Dewey certainly worked very hard to make that. So he yes. was a big Eisenhower backer. I, I I see that. I, I expected you to be a little more pro Dewey. I mean, can we? I guess let's give the benefit of the doubt. John Quincy Adams is not considered a particularly good president. No. Why is that? I know he has like a hostile Congress who doesn't help him do very much, and he's got Andrew Jackson. You know, it's kind of a problem when you have this loser of an election like railing about how the election was stolen for four years of your presidency. But whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't see that problem going away if he's reelected. Mm -hmm. Which is not to say he's not a good president. Yeah, it's interesting. I, we could talk about this in terms of like Adams preventing Jackson from being president, but I think you could argue that Jackson probably would have become president anyway. Yeah, uh, eventually, I guess. Yeah, like who's gonna run instead of Jackson in 1832, right? Yeah, I mean, Henry Clay. <laughs> I'm also being a little there. John Quincy Adams is really considered like a mid-tier president. He's yes. not at the bottom. He just doesn't shine through. And I can't think of a lot of actual achievements from him. Like He gets four years in office. What does he have to show for it? Yeah, I know. I, I get that that's better than the alternative. Right, yeah, I know. I think it's definitely fair. And it's also fair to point out that he, like his father, was very like ornery and did not attend his successor's inauguration. <laughs> He did help formulate the Monroe Doctrine, so depending on how you feel about that. Do you have a negative case to make for, for Dewey? Or we like both of these candidates and we're just debating them? I, I, have, I have a slightly galaxy-brained one. Oh, God. Okay. It's not, it's not that crazy. Do you know who Thomas E. Dewey's running mate was in 1948? It was Earl Warren. Yeah, who was governor of California at the time. Does Earl Warren become chief justice of the United States if he's vice president instead? <laughs> no. <laughs> Wouldn't you argue that's a bad thing? You're right. 
That is a bad thing. Yeah. But Thomas Dewey has the mustache. He does. There's no denying the mustache. At this point, you know, maybe the Warren issue is not... Maybe that's something we were about further down in the bracket. But it's something that just occurred to me right now. I mean, it is sort of telling you have yet to say, like, here's why why Dewey would have been better than Quincy Adams. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think he probably would have gotten more done, right? I think that's pretty fair. Like, I don't I don't necessarily know that, that John Quincy Adams, like, he's going to have more support in Congress as his term goes on, honestly. I, I feel like arguably the biggest argument for Adams is that... He wanted to do a lot of good things. Like, he wanted to pursue this kind of American system light policy. He eventually became pretty vocal against slavery, but he never really got to kind of, like, put any of those things into practice. It's one of those things where it's like, I don't feel at this juncture being very definitive that Adams would have been better because he never really got to see... He really only got so far in, like, his actual policies i I guess here is my case for adams over dewey now that you've Mm -hmm. said that we could have gotten more if we had adams in power longer i actually think if you put dewey in power i don't think america ends up with anything more it may end Mm -hmm. up with like slightly less depending on how like you said it's a very like unclear what he actually stood for but depending on his real views about some of the new deal policies and internationalism there's nothing that truman did that dewey wouldn't necessarily have done more than you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with that. Is, is that a fair enough argument for why Quincy Adams should defeat Dewey? I kind of think it is. Okay, I'm with that. Qu- Quincy Adams has also surprised me through this bracket. He, he stuck it through. Okay, uh, our second to last of this round. We have William Jennings Bryan in 1908 versus Henry Clay in 1832. Yes, yeah, so William Jennings Bryan in 1908. This is his final run for the presidency where he loses to William Howard Taft, another three named William. I just realized that all of his presidential election losses were to people named William. That's very interesting. So this is kind of where he gets a little like bigger than just his basic sort of free silver bimetallism ideas. He gets a little more kind of practical. He wants national banks to require deposit insurance. He actually gets endorsement from the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. He's the first president to ever get that endorsement. He basically just kind of wants to end what he calls government by privilege. He asks, shall the people rule with the answer tacitly being yes. But the thing is, the GOP kind of co-opted a lot of his most popular policies, which uh, neutralized his appeal to a lot of people who were frankly tired of him because they had seen enough of him (laughs) because he had ran so often. That's fair. We've certainly talked enough about him. Yes. Speaking of someone we've talked enough about, Henry Clay. Uh, (laughs) But this is 1832 Henry Clay. This is the one I keep saying is Pete Clay. This is the Henry Clay we need the most. This is when he runs against Andrew Jackson, who was running for re-election in 1832. Clay was the national Republican. He was former Speaker of the House. He had been Secretary of State under Quincy Adams, but he's senator from Kentucky running against Jackson. He is pro-national bank. He is anti these Jacksonian ideals of Indian removal and stuff like that. But Clay got 37% of the vote and lost to Jackson. All right, we've got we've got two titans here. Yes. <laughs> two titans of losing. Brian <laughs> and Clay. Yes. This is our last Brian in the bracket. Mm-hmm. And we also have Clay in 24. He'll be in the next matchup. I think this is a pretty easy one for me. Henry Clay. I, I think we got to advance this Henry Clay. Brian has not wowed me. And it's time to put his reign in this bracket to an end. I feel like this is also the weakest Brian because it's the one where the Republicans were like, yeah, sure, we'll do all this. Right. Like, yeah. like, who, like, what do you have now? It's right. like... <laughs> I read something a few days ago that was talking about, like, the most incompetent campaigns in American history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they talked about the McGovern one just around the vice presidential picks and Shriver pick after Eagleton, that is. But they were like, yeah, Brian in 1908 was like an incredibly incompetent campaign. <laughs> I was yeah. like, huh, uh, interesting. And, and so it was. And so it lost. And so I am comfortable with it losing to Henry Clay's most important campaign. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's definitely fair. All right, Brian is now out of the bracket. Poor guy. Yeah. And our last matchup, we have almost said Henry, but it's actually Gerald Ford <laughs> versus. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, yeah. You ever uh, read about that guy's politics? Right. Gerald Ford, who's a number three seed, versus Henry Clay in 1824, who's a number 15 seed. He is also our last play-in remaining, is this Henry Clay. Mm. So, 
Yeah, so Gerald Ford ran in 1976, not for re-election, but for election, because he was, of course, the first president to not be elected to the presidency or to the vice presidency. This is, of course, the first post-Watergate election. And he basically kind of was carrying on Nixon's pre-Watergate agenda. You know, he, he, he sold himself as a test leader compared to the Washington outsider Jimmy Carter. He, of course, had to deal with the pardon of Richard Nixon. He wanted to end price controls on natural gas. This wasn't a very issues focused campaign it was very superficial really one of the first sort of like modern televised campaigns that relied a lot on advertising and debate strategy there was actually advice that was given to both of these candidates by their respective campaigns was basically to be like appear as inoffensive as possible so say as little as possible and so one of their first debates because these were the first televised debates since the 1960 kennedy nixon debates for the presidency, which is wild when you think about it. But they were just kind of like, there was a period of time where they were just kind of like sitting on a table, just kind of like smiling and like saying nothing because they didn't want to offend anybody. But yeah, that was, a, that, that was, that was Gerald Ford. <laughs> a, a stunning endorsement from Michael. Uh, <laughs> Henry Clay in 1824. So this is his big first run for the presidency in which he got 13% of the vote. Like we said, he stood for this 19th century version of, of the Hamiltonian ideal, the American system, central bank, infrastructure, tariffs to protect Americans' new industries. He was a slavery gradualist, though he did own slaves. He just believed in, like, fight the fights you can win. He lost that election to... John Quincy Adams in that corrupt bargain. Henry Clay does not even make it to the contingent election, by the way. William H. Crawford, who we also eliminated, did. Yeah, that's this Clay versus Gerald Ford. <laughs> we should also probably note that if this Clay advances, he faces off with a... Eight-year-old or Clay. Yes. So, okay, I want me to make a positive case for Ford? <laughs> I, I do, because I had to do it last time. I really right. wanted us to kind of go for Ford over Brian, because... I kind of think Ford deserved to be reelected too. So let's hear it. So my pause case for Ford is that he... Okay, so part of it's just an anti-Carter argument. I've talked about this before. Carter was not a very effective president. That was not all of his fault. But he made just a lot of key leadership errors, a lot of key mission errors. I just read the chapter in Reaganland about the crisis of confidence speech. And Walter Mondale was like, I am begging you not to make this speech. <laughs> like, this was a terrible idea. Please do not do this. But Carter's like, no, I don't think so. He's like, I think this really says what I want to say to the American people. So a lot of issues on that. I, I think that what Ford would have been able to like more effectively do, honestly, is that he would have probably just done like a better job of... It's so tough, right? Because it's like, I love the Carter potential, you know? He really wanted to bring peace to the Middle East, like I guess everybody does. But he also really wanted to transition away from fossil fuels. Ford, I don't think, had that same vision when it comes to energy. And I don't know that either of them really could have done anything to, to ease the energy woes at that point. I just think it'd be too difficult. I just feel like it would have been just a smoother existence. And like, not again, he came off as kind of like clumsy and a fool. We shouldn't like downplay that's a big reason why he's lost. And I, I don't think I don't think he was necessarily sort of like a great leader of men either. But I just think he would have been better at playing the everyman than Carter had played in the campaign because eventually Carter just kind of seemed like he was a huge. It just felt like he was lecturing people at some point and was out of touch. Whereas I actually think Ford would have done a better job as kind of like. I'm the slow, steady hand who will guide us through these multiple crises. And maybe having a Republican be that helps ameliorate some of the excesses of the Reagan administration. Yes. The thing that really drags Ford down is the, the stagflation in the 70s, which is not really a thing he can he can do very much about. Right. Yeah. And he like flip flops on his plan to combat these economic woes, which does not help him. But it is like, you know, it's kind of a like, hey, I realize this isn't going to work. So we're going to try this. And then the Democrats and Republicans all got upset with him. He did not have like a particularly friendly political environment, which is ironic and sad because I actually think Gerald Ford's biggest potential. It's funny he's against Henry Clay because I think Henry Clay's a great example of this too. Is like this is someone who worked their way up through Congress, who became this very respected and well-known guy on like Capitol Hill, and who, who just seemed to know how to like talk to other politicians and was like happy to be a politician, and like mm -hmm. in a good way. Like I, I believe being a public servant can be a good thing, and Gerald Ford like really has a vision for what that looks like. You know, I, I find it hard to find any way to critique, like, his public service record um, yeah. as a congressman. And that's refreshing to look at from, like, these days, where everyone just hates Congress just instinctively, which I think is, like, a little unfair. Ford was also pro-choice. <laughs> oh, that, that's, no, that's actually a very good point. 
was that he and Betty Ford's wife were actually pretty socially liberal. I mean, actually, like, surprisingly so. Yeah, pro choice, the ERA, too. Pro-ERA. Right? Like, Betty Ford was asked in an interview, what would happen if, like, you found out your daughter was having an affair? And she was like, well, I would just want to make sure that he's, like, a nice guy. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Yeah, they were pretty socially liberal when it came down to it. Ironically, more socially liberal than Jimmy Carter, probably. Yeah. Not, not that he really had any sort of, like, conservative social policies, I would say. It was more so his personal beliefs, but... Yeah, with Ford, you much more likely you get the ERA passed. Yeah, I kind of think we let Ford have it. Okay, what? Do you have, like, a case against 24 Clay? My, my case against 24 Clay is that he got fourth place in that election. We don't get John Quincy Adams if Henry Clay wins that election. <laughs> I gotta try to be a little consistent there. I, I don't know. I don't have a... I, I'm a Henry Clay fan. I think Henry Clay probably would have been a better president than either John Quincy Adams or Andrew Jackson. But I think that is... 32 clay uh, okay yeah, no, I'm, yeah i'm fine giving it to ford wow gerald ford makes it to round four but that wraps up round three it sure does we've now gone from 16 candidates to eight candidates any surprising results lars I thought we were going to go with Dewey over John Quincy Adams, and yeah. I did not expect us to go for Kerry necessarily, though I am kind of glad we did, ultimately. But the Dewey-Quincy Adams one was a big one. Yeah, I agree with that. Honestly, Gerald Ford surprised me as well. <laughs> you, um, you were talking me into it. Yeah, I know, but I wasn't ex- like I, I wasn't really thinking initially like who he was going up against. And then I was like, you know what? I guess this doesn't make sense. I don't know how much longer he'll last, but uh, I, w- I was surprised on that one. The, re- the rest, I guess I could see. Yeah, Carrie, I guess I'm a little surprised about, too. And and yeah, and John Quincy Adams as well, I would say. And Benjamin Harrison, man, he, he's still dancing, so. <laughs> he uh, he is. Any matchups you're looking forward to? I think the big one that jumps out is Gore v. Carey. <laughs> we have, so in that half of the bracket, we have H.W. Bush v. Hillary Clinton. That's a banger right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Gore v. Carey, I think, will be a less interesting conversation is the is the problem. Is they're both just like, <laughs> when do you want to stop Bush? Like, ever right, or yeah. four years later? I don't know. Yes. Which is not to say they are both not qualified to be president, but... I have interesting thoughts on who is more qualified. Yeah, no, I agree. I, the, the other side of the bracket, too, is just like kind of like the weird bracket to me, right? Where it's like, we have an eight seed versus a seven seed. Like, that's kind of weird. And uh, it's, it's curious that, that Harrison may be in our final four. I guess we'll just have to find out yeah. what's going to happen. But I, if you had asked me to make a prediction early on, I, I certainly would not have said that. We we are very modernity biased on the left half of the bracket. Yes, yeah. And not at all really on the right side other than Ford, kind of. Yes, which is interesting considering that it's seated in such a way that technically the higher seeds that aren't Samuel Tilden in the left side of the bracket are the weaker higher seeds, just because that's how brackets work. But yeah. I mean, I guess we weren't seating them on how we thought they were going to win. We were seating them on how many votes they got in real life. So that explains that. Well... You're just going to have to stay tuned to find out who does, in fact, make the final four. And if I'm right or wrong about what I just said about Benjamin Harrison. And if you want to find out all the answers to these questions, subscribe to this podcast wherever you can find podcasts. Or just log on to thepostwriter.com and find it there. You can also, while you're there, stay tuned live to our updating bracket at thepostwriter.com slash floorfight. To see how each candidate did as we whittle them down over the course of the series. And they are almost fully whittled, as you can tell. Please do tweet us at thepostwriter.com or email us at contact at thepostwriter.com to let us know what picks you would have made and where we went wrong. We've already gotten some interesting emails about that. We really do appreciate their feedback. It really is. I would argue it's one of the better things about doing a show like this, I think, is the feedback, right? It's we talk to each other a lot and to hear of somebody else's opinion, it's very it's very nice. <laughs> it's nice um, to know someone's listening. Oh well, yes, that too. <laughs> five star reviews too, you could do that. We never talk about five star reviews in our podcast, but those help, so If you want to give one, give one. But hey, that's all the time we have for Floor Fight, so we will see you next time to talk about the electable eight.